Doing a daily Bible devotional has been the best thing that I've done for myself. My time in the Old Testament only proves to me again and again and again that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. When I'm reading the New Testament, I read it within the context of when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in the New Testament is just an expansion of one of those two thoughts. Those are the two lenses through which I think with my mouth open as I read through the Old and New Testaments. Join me, won't you, for another adventure in Coffee, the Bible, and Page. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Paige. I am Paige, your caffeine-imbued host. Here's my coffee. Mm. And it's another wonderful day in the Lord's neighborhood. Today we're going to continue on John's first epistle. We're going to be dealing with chapter 5. And before we get into that, I'd like to just, just catch us up to speed and remind us of the context of this letter. When, when I read John's gospel... And now this epistle, I've come to a couple of conclusions that go together. I know that John's gospel is a biographical essay, a portrayal of the life of Jesus. The vignettes he chose had as his endgame our being convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God, and that we might believe and have life in his name. John's endgame in this epistle also deals with who Jesus is. Were I to compare John's epistles to Paul's epistles, Paul, who is probably one of the greatest theological minds of all time, I would say Paul tells us how to think, John tells us how to live. I know that's an oversimplification. Paul tells us how to live as well. But that is a thought that dances through my head as I finish up this epistle. I see Paul as a great teacher and John as a great pastor. They overlap in lots of areas. But I see Paul with his brilliant mind and command of the Jewish thought and theology. He gets into the nitty-gritty theological details of this new faith that's exploding into the Gentile world. Paul is the apologist's dream. John, on the other hand, as a pastor, he lays a foundation of the two truths upon which everything else rests, including Paul's writings. And that would be, who is Jesus? How should we behave? Now, this isn't because he's a lesser mind than Paul. He's, he's not. He's brilliant. It's because, in my opinion, if the brilliant theological house that Paul builds is to stand the test of time, it must have a solid foundation, and the pastor's heart of John wants us to know and understand this foundation. John's message is not less than or more than that of Paul's message. Both are necessary. So according to John and Jesus, it's a matter of love God, love your neighbor. From these two things, loving God, loving our neighbor, springs the entire New Testament. By loving God and our neighbor, we encapsulate the entire Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. The New Testament and the Old Testament are inextricably linked. Let's look at the Ten Commandments briefly. You shall have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in, in heaven above or on earth, beneath or in the waters below. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day. 
Keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. Now, between commandments four and five, I drew a line. Commandments one through four are those commandments that deal with loving God. And below the line are the commandments that deal with loving the people around us. Love God, love your neighbor. It's a perfect summation of the Ten Commandments, don't you think? Loving God and loving your neighbor, though, cannot happen without relationship. You can't love somebody outside the context of relationship. Love isn't just that ooey-gooey feeling you have in your heart or the way your stomach kind of flip-flops when somebody you're crushing on walks by. If you're loving someone, you're involved with them, you're serving them, you're putting their needs ahead of your own. That's the very definition of love. Now, I'm going to refer to my relationship with my wife because, well, I can. I've been married to my wife over 47 years. I love her, and every day I do things I know that will bring her joy or contentment. I put her needs in front of my own. I deem her life more important than mine. Loving God is no different. You can't love God unless you have a relationship with Him. And if you really have a relationship with God, you want what He wants. If I really have a relationship with my wife, I want what she wants. If I'm in relationship with God, I will not have any other God before him. If I love my wife, I will not have any other woman before her. See how that works? When you love somebody, you want to do what pleases them. And that's the concept of love in a nutshell. Love God, love your neighbor. Which brings us back to John. Loving God will be shown by our obeying him. This is what John says. This involves our recognition of his words. In the first century, his words were the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Bible, along with the first century apostolic writings, our New Testament. Loving our neighbors is displayed by our serving our fellow believers, putting their needs ahead of our own, resulting in displays of love and service that reflect the one who saved us. These two foundational truths, loving God, loving our neighbor, these were under attack then as they are now. And that is the context for this epistle. All right. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. How do you show that? Remember, love is an action. It's a verb. It's not a noun. How do people around me know that I love my wife? Well, they can observe how I respond to her, how I do things for her, and how I put her needs above my own. How will people around me know that I love God? Well, read on. John does not leave us hanging. In fact, this is love for God, or this is what that loving God looks like, to keep his commands. His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So who overcomes the world? The one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Two, only the one that believes that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's implied. And only the one who keeps his commandments. See, this is John driving a stake into the heart of those pre-Gnostic Gnostics. You cannot be a believer unless you believe that the God of Israel is your God. You cannot be a believer unless you believe that God's words in the law and the prophets, our Old Testament, are our standard for obedience and behavior. 
these are some of the very clearly defining characteristics of those who follow God, as opposed to those who are following after this Gnostic, self-centered pagan philosophy that was being preached in the churches at that time. The Christian who loves God obeys his commands, walks in obedience. He loves God. He loves his neighbor. He displays his love for God in his day-to-day -day living. Eventually, according to John, though, we will see the true hearts of those who are not believers by how they behave. They will eventually show who they really are. What's in your heart eventually comes out. In fact, John said earlier in this epistle that there was a group of people who walked away from them, who left them. He said, look, they left us. That's showing you they never were part of us. They were not part of the family of God. They hung out with you for a while, but they didn't stay. The fact they didn't stay says they're not part of the family. John's being very common sense practical here. They left us. They were never part of us. Why? Because they didn't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. You know, my brother and I fought like cats and dogs growing up. But if anybody else stuck their nose into our, into our little squabble, we'd stop what we were doing and deal with that piece of business. My brother will charge hell with a bucket of water and squirt gun for me, and I would do the same for him. Why? Because he's family. You don't turn your back on family. Those people that left the church that John's talking about, he said when they left you, they're proving they weren't part of the family. So who's the one that overcomes the world? We are. And to stay in context, I believe that when John says the world here, he has these false teachers in mind. They've overcome these false teachers with their false ideologies and their false philosophies. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They do not. He goes on to say, Jesus is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. All right. This passage is a little confusing to me, but I'm going to see if I can say something that makes sense about it here. When it talks about Jesus coming by water, I believe it's talking about the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan. Now, a lot of people got baptized. Uh, there were um, some rather esoteric Jewish sects that uh, uh, baptized people as part of ceremonial washing. Um, so Jesus was baptized, but he also died for us. He came by water, and he came by blood. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, and he died on the shed his blood for us on the cross. And it's the Spirit, our indwelling, the indwelling Spirit of God that lives in us, that testifies to the truth of this. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. All three are in agreement. What are they, are they in agreement about? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Word, become flesh. God in the flesh. He goes on to say, we accept human testimony, sure, but God's testimony is greater because it's a testimony of God which is given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Again, now when he says something like this, he's saying this is a litmus mark. This is a way to measure people and their faith. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony of who Jesus is. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. 
And this is a testimony. God has given us eternal life. The life is in his son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. If you're truly of God, you will accept the testimony of God, which is contained in the law and the prophets, his words. You will accept that Jesus is God in the flesh and that eternal life is through him. If you don't believe that, you're a liar and nothing you say can be trusted. As I said before, while Paul tells us how to think in his epistles, John's putting boots to it all, telling us what right thinking looks like. It's like Paul is saying, sound doctrine looks like this. John is saying, the Christian looks like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. All right. There's been a lot of people who have totally twisted this around, saying, I can ask God anything I want. I want to win the lottery. I want a fast car. I want a big house. I want to be famous. Look closely. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. It's a very important qualifier. How do we know his will? Well, it's based on our relationship with him. Again, I'm going to refer to my relationship with my wife. In the 47 years of our relationship, I've come to know her very well. I've come to know what pleases her. I've come to know what she likes and what she doesn't like. And when I speak with her and when I talk with her, knowing what she likes and approves of gives me direction when I want to bless her. If we go out to dinner, at our favorite restaurant, I'll put my phone away and we spend a couple hours at a nice restaurant just talking. This is a treasured time for us. We go to our favorite restaurant, we eat a meal and we just talk away from the dog, away from the house, away from children and grandchildren. It's my wife and I in our special time over a meal. That pleases her. Well, as we walk with God and we're in a relationship with him, we do the things that pleases him. And as I've gotten to know what pleases my wife, I do things in, in accordance with activities that bring pleasure to her. That's kind of like the way it is with God. When we know his will and what his will is, our life tends to start focusing on that. Our prayers start to focus on that. The way I pray today is much different than when I used to pray as a young believer. I used to pray about things. I want this. I want that. Now my prayers are almost always about telling God how sorry I am about the sins I commit or telling God how grateful I am for the life that he's given me. My prayers are very much God-focused and less page-focused. Does that make sense? He goes on to say, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. Okay, this could be a little confusing. He says, first of all, someone sinning a sin that doesn't lead to death, pray for them. If someone's sinning a sin that leads to death, don't pray for them. In the context of this epistle, I'm assuming statement number one, where he says, someone sinning a sin that does not lead to death, pray for them. That's referring to true believers in the church. And the statement number two, if someone's sinning a sin that leads to death, don't pray for them, is referring to the false teachers' believers. If that's the case, 
then part of loving our true brothers and sisters involves us in being involved with them in the day-to-day, praying for them as they walk through life. Um, Praying for them in areas of life where they struggle and sin as they walk with the Lord. Do that. But when it comes to these false teachers and believers who left the community of faith, the true believers are not to involve themselves in their in their lives, their day-to-day living lives, perhaps praying for their conversion to the true faith, or preparing, you know, praying for their to them to repent, but your day-to-day involvement with them is over. I think that's what John is saying here. Perhaps that's because these false believers' sin is that of attempting to deceive God's people, and they've proven themselves to be enemies of God. That's the case. Don't involve yourself with the day-to-day with them. Perhaps this is the old pastor telling the church to give them to God and to walk away. Now, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. All right. Anyone who's born of God does not continue in sin. Yes, we sin. We all sin. But do not continue in sin. Does that make sense? It says here, Jesus has given us understanding. Let's see what's up here. Um, We also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Jesus has given us understanding. Well, to this generation, that understanding comes not only from the indwelling Spirit, but through the apostolic teachings and testimony, so that we may know him who is true. Jesus has given us understanding so that we would recognize who he is. But this goes beyond mere intellectual understanding. It extends to experiencing the eternal God in day-to-day living. And through this intellectual and experiential knowledge, we recognize that most importantly, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. This is the one last stab at the false teachers who would represent Jesus as someone other than God. John's saying Jesus is God. And finally, he says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. This is a reminder to Jewish converts to not adopt this aspect of the Gentile, i.e. Greco-Roman culture, with their worship of idols, their pantheon of idols, as well as a commandment to Gentile believers to not return to the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses that they left when they converted to this new faith. All right, that finishes up chapter 5. I'm going to come back later with a our last uh, podcast for this epistle with a conclusion, trying to wrap it all up. But it's amazing how two years ago I read it and got one group of thoughts, and now I'm reading again, I get another group of thoughts. God's Word is alive, and it's applicable. And John's epistle is very applicable to today's church, and I'm going to cover that in the conclusion comments. All right, this is Paige. Here's my coffee. Folks, I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, what did you think about today's Bible devotional? Email me and let me know your thoughts at ffog at me.com.